Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 24, Kelly and I discuss my recent Master Gardener talk about water and wildness and check in on Kelly's ongoing sewing project. First off, I want to thank everyone who chimed in on a blog post when we skipped a week last week and I asked for some feedback on this podcast and we got some... We got some good feedback. We got some good feedback. People said there was kind of a split between people liking us yabbering and then having guests. So we'll continue to yabber and, and have, have guests. guests. Exactly. <laughs> but we might yabber, uh, jabber and yabber longer because people seem to actually enjoy listening to us. Well, there's the, the time problem, whether it should be a half hour or an hour. So... And I'm well, I'm an avid podcast listener, and sometimes I actually like it when it's an hour because that seems to fit in within the framework of chores or commuting somewhere. It seems to be an hour is a good a good span of time. So we're gonna go for an hour from now on out. Except probably this week. License to jabber. Life life has intervened this week, so I don't have a lot of editing time. But we, you know, we actually have a rule on our blog about excuses. We don't, we never had the blog post that people put up that says, I'm sorry, we have no blog post today. And I kind of broke that rule to say that I'm sorry, we have no podcast this week. Last week. Last week, exactly. Because Eric had a kidney stone. Yes, I had a kidney stone in the middle of the night, which is the fourth one in 20 years. So they come around every five years or so. (laughs) Like some kind of internal comet. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I told a friend about it. I told him, you know, you got to go to the emergency room sometimes and have some interesting substances, which lead to a incredible sense of well-being. And he was kind of like, well, why didn't you just go for the emergency room this time? But we were then, just too lazy. It was like, I don't know. You, I, you, know, you have the sense after you've been through it a few times that by the time we got you to the emergency room, by the time they saw you, it would be over, and it would have exactly. been. It didn't last that long. Yeah, we didn't. This was not the one. The first one lasted, it seemed, for two hours or something. It came in the middle of a screening of a movie called uh, Basquiat. Basquiat during the that. Andy Warhol scene, <laughs> when played by David Bowie, I think, right? We never got to see we the rest of We never got to see the rest of that movie. But that was scary because we didn't know what it was. And exactly. so all of a sudden Eric's just dying and we took him to the emergency room. And I remember when they got him on the morphine drip or whatever it was. And, and then everything was fine. He had this fine. beatific smile yep. on his face. And it was nice to have all that pain over with. But then after that, it got a little uh, humdrum. Like, oh, no, it's kidney stones again. I can be flipping about it because I don't have them. You've never had it. Mm. I think we're a little off topic here. Well, but see, but we can yabber as much as we want because the people say it's okay. That's not true. (laughs) Moving on, our first topic on this episode. uh, Is your uh, Master Gardener's talk, right? You, this week, you you worked kind of hard on a a new PowerPoint uh, presentation to give to the Master Gardener's. Master Gardeners being volunteers for the Extension Service, which is a network of programs sponsored by the USDA and funded by 
local universities to offer gardening advice to, and actually master, well, there's a master food preserver program too, which I'm a part of, which offers food preservation advice. And in this case, it was a group of master gardeners in Los Angeles County, overseen by uh, an amazing person named Yvonne Savio. And the point of the LA master, master gardeners is to, to help uh, disadvantaged communities grow their own food. So I'm always happy to speak to that group of people because I really, really believe in the mission. And I came up with a, I wanted to come up with a just totally knockout PowerPoint, but there was a time crunch again and a kidney stone, so I had to compromise a little bit. But <laughs> Excuses, excuses. Excuses, now, excuses. How did you feel about the talk? I, it was, you know, I'm a bit of a thought stylist, as I'm known around the house, which means <laughs> a bit. sometimes I get a little off topic at times. And, you know, Marshall McLuhan's one of my hero thought stylists. And as he once put it, if you don't like that idea, I got others. It had a little bit of that, that vibe. It's good when Kelly is there to keep me on track. But I wasn't there, so you were free to thought style rampantly did you did there you, you didn't bring out down. like the i didn't go the full, centaur or any of those things no did you? i no, didn't some, i used to in powerpoints just to throw in little jokey slides here and there maybe i should start doing that again if people like that it had like a kind of a dada moment to your talks i didn't go full terrence mckenna mm. though mm. and start talking about machine elves or something mm. like that that didn't happen thankfully but mm. as to how it went uh, well, I, I began with a metaphor, uh, something that I've always thought about in terms of Los Angeles, and that's the parallel between the way we treat water here and the way we treat traffic. The talk was, you know, I was kind of asked to do a talk partly about water use, because for those of you who are not in California, we're in the middle of a apocalyptic drought here. It's really bad. We may end up being the new Australia uh, in a few years. So I was asked to do partly about that and then kind of a general gardening talk for the rest of it. I ended up spending about half on water, half on gardening. And the metaphor that I used was, again, this parallel between freeways and water here because in the early 20th century, Los Angeles essentially treated what should be a good thing as a problem. And in permaculture, you know, you say the, the problem is, is the solution is in the problem. And the parallel between traffic and water is that we treated traffic as a problem, so we built freeways so you can push traffic along. And we treated water the same way. There were a couple of really big floods in the 1930s here. And... Because of that, all of the rivers in Los Angeles were dammed up and lined with concrete. And channelized. Channelized. And it's kind of the same problem because, you know, you look at traffic in a city like Paris or New York, and the street itself is a destination. It's not a... It's not a sewer for traffic. Like a conduit. It's not a conduit, It's exactly. multi-purpose, Right. It's somewhere where you would want to go and sit at a sidewalk cafe or something like that. 
And unfortunately, in, in L.A., there's a lot of streets that are just these, they're de facto freeways. I mean, we have freeways. We have too many of those. At a certain point, actually, it got too expensive, and the city finally realized the freeways weren't, they don't work. That's the other thing, is, is because of a problem called induced demand, or i.e., if you build it, they will come. What happens is you build a giant freeway, and it quickly fills up the capacity, and it's jammed again. And actually, you know, they just widened one of the freeways here on the on the west side, and that's exactly what happened. It didn't solve a problem at all. It's just as jammed as it was before. Not any better. Mm. Actually, they've timed it. It's not any better at all. So we have what should be an asset that is bringing people to a place, and we're making it a problem. And you have these streets here where there's these kind of boarded-up buildings because it's really unpleasant to sit along these these de facto freeways. And it's a problem. Now, the mayor has a great streets program, so maybe he gets it. I don't know. Maybe that's going to change. I think it might be changing. You know, they're realizing that these streets aren't good for people. They're not good for business. They're not good for children. They're not good for old people. And they're starting to change that. And that's a good thing. And actually, there's a consciousness about the L.A. River, too, that's changing. There's a part of it that now has kayaking and canoeing seasonally you can you can go and paddle along it it's beginning to be reborn as a river yeah as a destination as opposed to like a hollywood set where they would race cars which is all yeah race cars or there's that giant ant movie i always think of uh, i always think of cars racing up and down the dry riverbed um, because the the channel that they made for it is dry most of the year with like a little trickle it looks like looks like someone's like car wash runoff going down a driveway but that's the la (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so um, a lot of um, drag races and things are shot in those channels. And, and that's all the river is to most people. I mean, I think most people would say there's a river in L.A. You know, you don't say that when you're in Dublin or in Paris. <laughs> the river's the heart of the city. Um, but here, you don't even know where it is. Well, it was a joke for a long time. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was a joke. And actually, when I was a kid, they considered putting a concrete deck on it and making it a truck highway to ferry trucks from the port to their, you know, distribution warehouses. Why not? Why the heck not? Why not? Right. That was their idea at the time. The irony is that in the, I believe it was the 1930s, they, the city hired the the firm, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park and many other famous parks in America. They, they hired his firm to come up with a plan for the LA river and he said, you should make it a park. That's one thing you said. The like other, or his like firm a, said, Kind of like a, a string say. of parks along the, like a long the, the park. river. No, it was, it was going to be a, real, a long, continuous just park. A continuous park. Okay. Like Central Park. And he also said, don't build up in the hills. You should be able to be in the city, look up the hills, and see a natural landscape. And this was universally rejected. It was ignored, unfortunately, at, at great cost, because it turns out that would have been the right thing to and do. And that's what now we're kind of trying to do again after all this. I mean, they're, they're developing little parklets along the river now. We're trying to retrofit that in, and it's not going it's to gonna, be easy to do. No. Because it's been built... Uh, As an industrial the, zone. Right. Really and it, it should be said that the one of the other problems was that you had people from the East Coast who moved here, who kind of made the city what it is in the 20th century. And they were used to East Coast rivers, which are more predictable and behave themselves better. 
the L.A. River would go from a trickle in the summertime to literally a mile wide in the wintertime. And so that's you had why to give it space. You had to give it a lot of space. And that was Olmsted's idea was to, to have a, a huge park so that it could flood when it was needed. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of the year it would be a big park. It made a lot of sense. And it also makes sense from a water perspective because when you let the water when you let the river do that, it recharges the aquifer mm-hmm. and that reach, you know, that's a important water source for us, but it also ins- controls flooding. Exactly. But instead of that, we have this system where it's all in concrete channels and it gets uh, shunted out to the ocean where what should be a solution to our problem is now a problem because that river takes with it all this oil and chemicals and Garbage. flushes it out into the ocean. And the, so after rain, then the ocean's filthy and you can't swim or surf. Exactly. As, as the avid surfer here is saying. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. So the part of my talk, though, is, well, what do you do? I, I kind of took it on a residential level because that's our experience I think these ideas are applicable to apartments and other spaces and, and urban city spaces and parks too. But I kind of then took that metaphor and then ran down kind of the things that we're working on here at our house in terms of water. And there's a bunch of things we're doing right now. I started out by talking about the what I call the boring parts of water conservation. The not sexy parts? The not sexy parts. The sexy parts are rain gardens and gray water and things like that. The unsexy parts are fixing leaks. So I started with a picture of a water meter. Now, I don't know. I know we have some international listeners, so I don't know what water meters are like in other parts of the world. In the U.S., a lot of them have a little spinning triangle on them. It's kind of an indicator that indicates whether your water is uh, running or not. And to check for leaks, what you can do is turn off all your, you know, make sure you're not running anything, basically. So you're not running the washing machine. You're not running the dishwasher. Don't open a faucet. Uh, go down, look at where that little triangle is, make a note of where it is, and then don't use any water for a half hour. Come back after a half hour, look at the little triangle, and if it's moved, you know there's a leak somewhere. If it hasn't moved, you're, you're good. That's handy. That's a good thing to know, right? So we talked about that. The other thing we talked about, of course, you know, I also said, do as I say, not as I do, because have I done that in a while? I have not mm. done that in a while. We need to do that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing I talked about was irrigation timing is checking, and this is so exciting, right? Checking your, <gasps> oh, excuse yeah, me. <laughs> checking the irrigation timer <laughs> on a quarterly basis. Solstices, you know, equinoxes, whatever, make a, uh, put on your ritual garb or something and check the irrigation timer. Again, not something that I, I've done, which I need to do, of course, is we're entering into our winter when it hopefully will rain so much, as, as rain, rain somewhat, and we can um, hopefully at some point turn off the irrigation timer would be nice for a while and just rely on rainwater. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, but anyways, happen. checking and, and uh, you know, I think ideally doing that uh, once a month is a good thing. I also mentioned Kelly actually went to a bloggers conference at the municipal water district. 
And actually, to, I, I mentioned their website as a resource, too, because it actually has a really nice irrigation calculator. Do you know that? Mm, they have all, they're, they're doing their best. They've got all sorts of stuff, but nobody knows to go look there. This is kind of LA-specific advice, so I apologize, but I'll leave a link in the show notes for that timer. Basically, what you do is you enter your uh, the kind of soil you have and the kind of plants you have, and it spits out some numbers for your irrigation. I would imagine that other places would have similar calculators. Hopefully, but I wouldn't be so sure about that. California is a agricultural state, and it has a, a network of of irrig- you know it has a network of sensors actually that monitor evaporation rates and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's what this is tied. It's pretty cool. You can you can look at that stuff. You can look at that data raw if you're geeky. And it's real, you know, it updates, I don't know how many times a day, but it's it's daily information on how much uh, plants are transpiring. It's, it's actually really pretty cool. And that's what that, that's what their site is linked up to. Now, you get a, you get a, re, you get a number from that that's, it's not, you know, you still have to, you still have to go out there and check your own soil because it's, it's just a starting point. But it's a starting point. Most people, you know, when you set a irrigation timer, how long you set it for? It's it's a really confusing thing to do. I mean, one way would be to run it and then go out and dig down and see how deep the irrigation is going. Or, you know, the other thing I showed was sticking a, you can stick a, a metal rod in the soil and then see how deep the rod goes. And that's kind of a indication of how deep the water's gone. However, you know, urban soils have chunks of concrete and weird, diff- you know, like our soil out front, as you dig down, it's hard clay at one point, and it's pretty soft on top. It's, it's, so that's not exactly an, an exact test either. I think the best thing, of course, is just to dig down and actually get the feel of the soil. But what I said, I went through all those things, and I just said, well, look, you know, it's, it's not one of those things. It's all of the above. So use the irrigation you know, the, the Metropolitan Water District suggestion to begin with, and then try some of those other things. And together that will will kind of give you a good indication. And then I went on to talk about gray water. And, you know, we should do a whole uh, episode on that. But I basically just went through the laundry to landscape system that we have, uh, which is very simple. Our laundry machine goes through a three-way valve out to the landscape. Three-way valve lets you switch between the sewer and the and the landscape. So you can choose whether or not your laundry water goes there or not. Exactly. You can, you can be kind of a water DJ, as it were, <laughs> switching between the and two. And you would do that because maybe you were using some chemicals in your wash that you didn't want in your yard, or you were, uh, if you have diapers and such, you certainly don't want that in your yard, or uh, if it's been raining a lot and you just don't want to add any more liquid to the yard, then you would you would use the valve. Not that that is much of a concern for us. Or you're bleaching your husband's fencing uniform. Yes. Which is a really embarrassing thing to admit. <laughs> the other embar- is a natural bleach. It's an eco yeah. bleach, but I still wouldn't send it out to the landscape. Exactly. Oh, we also talked about that, the kind of laundry detergent that you use, and I recommended Art Ludwig's formulation, which is called Oasis Biocompatible. It's hard to find gray water compatible detergents. That actually work. You have to be very careful. You just eco detergent isn't good enough. It has to be gray water compatible. So look really closely at your labels. And and we like Oasis. It's hard to find. We order it. It lasts concentrated, so it lasts a really long time. And um, your better health food stores sometimes carry it. 
So that was what I recommended. Now, of course, what I didn't mention was that our gray water system isn't working right now because our laundry machine hoses are leaking on the bottom. I think they're a little overtaxed. <laughs> yeah, by, they can't take the pressure. They can't take the pressure of the pipe. Someone in the in the audience, one of the master gardeners suggested a, a bigger pipe, which might be a solution. Yeah. I, I mean, got, we've been using this. This is an old beater machine that we've had for many years, and it's been doing the gray water thing for many years too so it's not an it's not it's not an overnight a problem that happened overnight i mean it's just i think the seals on the bottom are sort of just kind of might have just rotted away from age we need to it's just hard we have to pull out the washing machine it's and it's a stack which makes it even harder to deal with and um you know and look at its nether regions and see what's going on with it <laughs> it's nether regions I, I need to probably just replace some of the hoses underneath it or tighten them up mm. or something or maybe the the bigger pipe i'm not sure true confessions true confessions the 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 plans that i recommended during the talk are available on art ludwig's website and i'll have a link to that in the show notes laundry to landscape plans that he has they're free they're downloadable he's even got a list of all the parts so you can just walk to your local hardware store and basically get everything you need except for that three-way valve which is a little bit of an exotic part he sells it i think you can also get it at pool and spa supply places because that's that's what it's for but it's a great resource his his websites are a really phenomenal resource and he's very generous in, in giving this stuff away for free and i should be said that he was important in getting the law changed here too to make this all possible it's possible to do again without a permit and uh you don't need an inspection you don't need anything you can just you can just do it very cool and laundry landscape we should just add is is the easiest kind of of gray water you can do i mean it's the kind of gray water you can do yourself uh it's it's just not hard so definitely the easiest that's where you start certainly you can think about doing more later but but if you're looking to start with gray water start with laundry landscape and then I went on to talk about the rainwater harvesting that we're doing here, which is a little complicated because we're on a hill and the LA Department of Building and Safety, when we had some work done on this house, required us to run all of the water from the roof down to the street, where of course it's a problem because it goes out in the ocean ultimately. Now, in fairness to the Department of Building and Safety, we're on a hill, so we do have to keep the water off of the front slope. We don't want the house shimmying down the hill, which actually happens in our neighborhood. It's what LA is famous for, for is, of course, mudslides and, mud and earthquakes. It's because it never rains, and then when it does rain, everything goes a who, <laughs> and we're hilly, and so yeah, I mean, there's houses in our neighborhood which have slid, so we don't want that to happen. There's a house that collapsed, actually, yeah. several years ago, the last time it rained really hard. But I realized recently that I, while well, I couldn't take all of the rainwater off the roof, I could take half of the rainwater off of one half of the roof and send it out into the backyard, which is flat and well away from any foundation. That's the other thing is good idea to keep any, if you're going to do a rain, rain garden, keep it away from your house foundation. You don't want that because that can get expensive. And we know from experience about that. But I realized I could run a pipe not so attractive. It is not attractive at all. But it's gotten so so Mad Max crisisy around here with the with the drought that I don't care. I'm like, yeah, yeah, run your. How, how fat is that pipe? Is that, is that a four inch pipe, six inch? Yeah, pipe? it's a four inch pipe. I it's was able huge. to hide it behind some vegetation, but there's a there's the end of it emerges. <laughs> hide and yeah, there's this giant pipe 
angling off of our roof, spanning like how far back does it go? Like 20 feet behind our avocado tree. And then there's a, a junction, uh, like a, a joint on it, and it takes a sharp left and it crosses the path that goes to my shed and office. And uh, I have to jump over it every time I go out there and and discharges into the area around our vegetable beds. So we're just sort of enlivening that, that zone, I, I guess. It's an interesting... Our um, soil is so dry, you know, when not uh, when not irrigated, that you know there isn't like naturally worms or a lot of life in any of the soil. It's very hard packed and dry. What's interesting about this zone where we have these raised beds and where which we um, we have raised beds now. Before we had Eric's um, straw bale experiment, and we also mulched that area extraordinarily heavily. It's almost like a mulch basin, uh, and so that's a very loose relatively wet zone and it's interesting to see how lively it is with worms and bugs and creatures it's it's an actual living zone and so uh, while we don't have a formal rain garden we're hoping just to at least catch some of that water and send it into our yard and but it's ugly <laughs> but I don't care uh, I mean our rainy season is all of three months long I pray that it rains a lot uh, but we're going to catch whatever we can and send it to the soil you mentioned mulch, and that's something that I talked about um, during the lecture as well, as, of course, it's a water-saving strategy for obvious reasons. It, it prevents evaporation of a lot of water. But there's some other things about it, too, and I mentioned the research of a Ventura County extension agent for UC who did some mulch testing and found out some interesting things due to an actually an accident in his research, he discovered that mulch changes soil texture underneath it to make it more receptive to water. I mean, mm. it's truly a miraculous thing. And then he also figured out that the fungal growth, anyone who has mulch knows that it very quickly will, will grow fun, fungi. You'll see these sort of mycelial strands that look like white hair white threads, yeah. threads in them. That's actually the body of... Um, the mushroom, the, the, the things you see are just the fruiting part of it. The, the bulk of it is that mycelial network. And in mulch, what he figured out was that that mycelial network repels Phytoptera, which is a kind of algae that's very, very deadly to trees. So mulch, you know, not only does it preserve water, it changes soil texture, but it prevents diseases. I think one of the things he was trying to prove is some people think that mulches cause diseases and i suppose that can sometimes happen but uh overall it's it's more beneficial i think he was showing that it actually prevents diseases uh so definitely mulch 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 uh, good thing mulch, to do. mulch thick, has thick to mulch. be thick yeah well that's the other thing that he talked about in that lecture which was he was also trying to figure out what the optimal amount of mulch is and basically what he said to do was you apply uh, six inches of mulch, and that kind of uh, decompresses the three to four inches eventually. And, and why that number is important is if you have more than that, you risk nitrogen runoff. If you, you know, because mulch has nitrogen in it, and it can run off and end up in a river, which isn't a good thing. But if you have less than that, you don't get the benefit. So he kind of figured out that that, you know, that six inch level was, was just about right. And so that was, you know, I, talk, so I talked a little bit about that. We talked about the rainwater harvesting. 
I mentioned how rain barrels in our climate don't really make sense because we have this huge gap between, you know, May and just November when it doesn't rain. You need and a cistern, not a rain barrel yeah, you need in a this climate. Here. Yeah. So rain barrels don't really make a whole lot of sense, and I so I touched on that briefly. So in our climate, it's better just to send the water to the soil. Send it straight to the soil, mulch, do the other things. I've always had fantasized about having a cistern down. A giant cistern. It would be in our garage because our garage is below grade. And so we could we could stick it down there. It would be and, like and an indoor pool. <laughs> we could take the top of the garage off and put like seats all around and you yeah. could dive in and out of the cistern. That's nice. It would be fantastic. Our garage is at the bottom of the slope, by the way. That's why Kelly's yeah. talking about that. Yeah, that's the only place where the cistern could go. And then we'd have to use some sort of electric pump to get the water up the up to the house. But, you know, details, details. Then we moved on in my talk. Did you talk about anything more sexy than mulch and pipe and... Well, being the thought stylist I am, I started with a mechanical duck from the 18th century. A mechanical duck? The mechanical duck, it was Valconsen's 1739. It's actually not just a mechanical duck. It's a mechanical pooping duck. And I'll, I'll, um, you know what I'll do is I'll embed the video. Someone has, um, the original mechanical duck burned in a fire, but someone has recreated it, and it's pretty it's amazing. It's 1739? It quacks and poops. 1739. Well, it eats, too. It eats, yes. It, it must eats. eat. If it poops, therefore it eats. It does. <laughs> so it's a little, it's, it's like a life-size, I've seen it's like a life-size mechanical duck with some fairly lifelike motions in its head and very neck. lifelike it yeah. flaps its wings it yeah. quacks although its body looks like kind of like an open weave ba gold basket um but y you can feed it ball bearings something or pearls or, or something pearls. like that i'm not sure what <laughs> and they were if it was for the king maybe it was pearls and then they come out the other end but what what, what did Why the did duck I have to do with your duck? talk it it's been bothering me for a little bit for for a while now because that mechanical duck is it's so 18th century and it's this metaphor for nature as a machine. And I had a little bit of a breakdown actually at the Master Gardener conference. I was I slipped out of my Master Food Preserver talk briefly to attend a talk by a bee expert who will go unnamed who really got me angry, I've got to say, who he, he began with a series of attacks on natural beekeeping. Which is what you do. Which is what I do and what, what our, our friends do. Natural beekeeping meaning, no, we don't treat them. We, you know, basically don't, we're, we're rather hands-off with them. Not completely, but, but pretty hands-off. And, and we keep feral bees. Yeah, that's a whole other that's But a whole that's other part of what it gets his dander yeah. up, right? His dander was up. He he, he began with a, an attack. It was a it's very pointed attack. At one point actually calling anyone who's a natural beekeeper a hippie, which is a like, that's a, <gasps> a hippie. I know. Spotting words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, like an old country western song or something. <laughs> I I what actually, is that? Yeah. I like hippies because hippies <laughs> Throughout the 1970s, actually, we're still making and doing and building things, mm -hmm. I got to say. So that I, I thought that was uh, unnecessary. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point during his talk, I realized that to this man, nature is a machine that he understands. And that he control. thinks he, I should say that he thinks he understands and that he can control. 
And within that idea of control, I, you know, it's a, it's a big problem. I mean, for me, it's like the, the thought in the 19th and early 20th century that, oh, we understand all the components of, of human mother's milk so we can formulate it. But of course, it's always the things that we don't know about that are the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's the thought that it's a machine rather than a complex living system. And with bees, very obviously, a com- complex adaptive system that we only understand a tiny fraction of what's going on with them. Not to mention that they might have some kind of consciousness to them that we interact with to get woo-woo for a second here. Mm-hmm. And so this, this idea of nature as a machine bothered me. And that goes back to the Enlightenment. It's very much an Enlightenment idea. Because prior to the Enlightenment, we didn't think thing, that living things were machines. Right. Like clocks. Like exactly. I think like we, I don't know, somehow we invented clocks, and then all of a sudden everything was a clock. Kind of like everything's a computer now. We have, you know, you know everything's reducible to software, hardware, wetware. Nature is a clock. In the 18th century, it was all clock. And so, like this, this goose is, or duck is a clockwork duck. Exactly, it's it's an, and it's a metaphor for that 18th century. As wonderful as the mechanical duck it's is, charming, it is a wonderful but thing. Sure but it is a it, metaphor for that. They were thinking if our if we just had finer gears, we the, can build. A we could build a real mechanical duck. duck. Like the duck is reducible to a set of gears. And it, of course, this kind of thinking. I mean, this is this is kind of my problem with Monsanto too, because this is their kind of thinking too. We understand nature, therefore we can recreate it and, and build things. Tinker. And tinker. And, well, we don't care what the unintended consequences of that will be. And that, you know, that attack on the hippies is kind of, that's when the Gaia hypothesis happened too. So those hippies came up with this more, with this very different view of, of how nature works and how we work. Well, I began with that that metaphor, which is worthy of like hours of discussion on its own. And then I tried to spin that out into some gardening, some hands-on gardening advice from that that, that kind of uh, abstract level. <laughs> but it actually, I came up with a few things. And, you know, to the credit of, of science, a number of um, of studies out of uh, actually out of of university california that kind of back up that more complex view of of nature let's say holistic view of nature one of the things i mentioned was a study that's called hedgerows increase beneficial insects on farms in the central valley i love these titles and what that study looked at was a group of native plants and this would apply anywhere in the world but of course it was california so they picked california native plants they planned them along a uh, farm, and then they vacuumed up all the insects on <laughs> the plants that they found to see what was on them. Oh, I thought they, for some reason, <laughs> I was laughing because I was imagining them vacuuming the entire field just to have a clean starting place. Not the entire field, <laughs> no, but they okay, vacuumed up the... They, they, were, t- they were sampling what, what was yeah, living sampling on those. Yeah, sampling and counting. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, this is the idea of the hedgerow, which is an old concept. I mean, old farms used to have farmland was in small, smaller parcels and it was surrounded by hedgerows. I mean, there's still hedgerows in Great Britain. They, there's Hence the bustle been, in the hedgerow. Yeah, don't be alarmed now. 
It's just a sprinkling for the May Queen. <laughs> but the um, they still exist, but they and, and they are really important uh, not only for insects but for small animals and birds. And I believe in in Great Britain, there's there's people pushing to restore the hedgerows and save the hedgerows. Here out in the West of America, we don't, you know, hedgerows aren't really part of our vocabulary, our, our farming vocabulary. But it, um, it would make sense. Like uh, an, uh, another alternative would be to have fields which are working and then fields which are fallow and they're covered with wild flowers and plants. Well, hedgerows, right? Well, hedgerows are strips, really, as opposed strips, to, right. you know, as opposed to, but it's just that Larger like in areas. our Central Valley, if you've ever driven through our Central Valley, which is where the, like, it's like the heartland of our agriculture, it's just field after field after field. And the fields are either in production or they're barren, like dust. I mean, it doesn't look like soil because it's not really soil anymore. It's piles of dust. And there's very little diversity. There's very little. Life. There's no life in the Central Valley. It's very odd. It's our breadbasket. It's our almond, our almond bowl, our fruit bowl. <laughs> Everything comes from there. But it is not a place of life. It's, it's frightening, actually. And particularly now with the drought, it's, it's more grim than it ever has been. But anyway, this so this uh, report was suggesting that farmers leave a plant permanent, like permanent. Yeah, have hedgerows, and you know it's it's part of what I think should be pretty obvious advice. And I try to apply it not because we're I I don't want to solve farming problem. That's not my area of expertise, and I'm speaking to a group of master gardeners here, so I wanted to apply this to our own city urban landscapes, and we can do hedgerows here too. And, and in fact, one of my dreams is that we'll all get together somehow and make the city one giant hedgerow and increase, get rid of those lawns and increase all kinds of flowering plants that bring in, bring in wildlife. Um, we have a, it's like the Natural History Museum garden that we have here, which the point of that garden is to bring in natural, you know, wildlife and see what takes up residence there. And they have a vegetable garden. I want to show that the two go together. And it, it helps your vegetable garden to have native these plants These wild places. That ha, no matter how much, how small your space is, you still need to have a certain portion that's devoted to... To the wild. To the wild. And yeah. we've actually... It's like a gift to the wild. It's like a tithe, maybe. You can think of it that way, that you make to the wild. In our yard, we've actually decreased the amount of vegetables and increased the amount of native plants and Mediterranean plants that we have here for exactly this reason i think it's actually not sustainable to have a backyard that's full of vegetables you need to have plants that are going to bring in insects that are going to you know take you know essentially is restore a balance to your yard if you, if you just plant all vegetables it's going to be off balance yeah it's going to be off balance and man would it be nice if we had all those parkways aka hell strips planted mm -hmm. with more than just grass right or mm -hmm. god forbid artificial turf <laughs> uh so that was I, that was one thing i brought up i also to back that up i i mentioned a resource and i apologize this is also pretty california specific but the uc davis arboretum all-stars which is a list of plants that um 
bring in beneficial wildlife, but also are easy to maintain and look good year round, which is as important for urban spaces. Yes, they're all stars for planting in a residential context. And I'll link to that in the show notes. And it's searchable too. You can it's enter what you want. It's mostly native, not all. There's some it, like Mediterranean, exactly. and South African, you know, kind of, but it's mostly, it's, it's good. It's a, it's good a really list. good resource. And then I mentioned someone who's a hero of mine, which is, and I can't pronounce his name. I apologize. It's Pete Udolf, who is the plant designer for the Highline Garden in New York City, who is keenly aware of, of all of the issues we mentioned, but also an extremely gifted designer. And what he's done with the Highline Garden is create a environment that looks natural, but it's actually more subtle than that. It, 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 it fulfills our idea of what a natural landscape would look like, but it's a little bit hyper-natural. And he has carefully designed it so that it looks good year round, but it changes. And it's also, you know, he'll leave the seed stalks on in the fall for the birds. It, it's pure genius. And I thought, you know, this is, I, I, the Master Gardener is a group of people I really love because I think they're on the front line of saving the world, basically, of making the city a big garden. And I wanted to kind of put these resources out there for them to, because I'm not a good designer and we do so much writing and blogging that we don't have time to garden sometimes, ironically, but I want that group of gardeners to put their heads together and put those sort of three things together and, and essentially save the world. And <laughs> well, there you go. And, and as, Get uh, to work, Master gardeners. as Marshall McLuhan said, if you don't like that idea, I got others. <laughs> You also like to send out thought probes. So that was a thought probe, if you will. <laughs> well, speaking of thought probes, shall we move on to mm. Kelly's sewing project? Now, in an earlier episode, we discussed Kelly's desire to have a uniform, which was a little bit, I got to say, a little scary to me. You never told me it was scary. Oh, you know it was scary. The idea of Kelly would have a uniform. It's a little scary. What, are you going to be embarrassed to be seen in public with me? Well, that, you know... Could I mean that like, possible? But well, excuse you have a uniform that you wear all the time right now. Yeah, but it's it's well that was okay. Now here's the difference though: it's not home sewn. <laughs> no one walks up to me and says, "Did you sew that yourself?" Uh, and, and when I speak of Eric's uniform, he wears jeans and a plaid shirt like every day of his yeah, life. Yeah, which is getting old. I'm getting tired of it. No, but it's funny. We were at his mother's house uh, this morning, and uh, I was looking through some photos, and I found a picture of Eric when he was ten, and he was wearing jeans and a plaid shirt. And his yeah, look at hair is exactly, exactly the, the same, same as I did in the 1970s. A, yeah, Eric just is unchanging. It's, it's totally unchanging. But um, back to your um, back to your uniform. Now, in order to, to sew a uniform, you had to learn how to sew. I have to learn how. It's, it's, it's still in progress. We can't use the past tense on that. I, uh, you've actually. It's been. You've now. Well, let's let's get up to date on where I'm, you've been. I've been learning, very impressed by, been taking, by your sewing projects more than taking, your ceramic projects. No, no. Let's not talk about the ceramics. We'll get back to that later. Um, but I have been focusing on sewing, uh, and I've been learning how to sew at Sew LA. I'll give them a props. I really like Sew LA as a community and a school. They're in uh, the Atwater area of Los Angeles, and um, I have I started off making a tote bag. I mean, I have sewn before, but it's been a while, and it was disastrous. So I thought I should start over again and erase my bad habits. And I have been learning good practices and good habits from them that I had not known before. So I started with making a tote bag 
And next I made a skirt with pockets. Yes, ladies, with pockets. Uh, it was very exciting. Um, and I uh, just learned how to, I just made a throw pillow with a invisible zipper. The point of the class was to learn how to sew an invisible zipper. Very excited about the invisible zipper at this point uh, and want to make a billion pillows. I also got a, um, a friend sold me a sewing machine of hers for just a few dollars and it's an old sewing machine and I, I'm not sure how it's going to work yet. I, I'm, I'm worried that it's too old, like for instance, that it, it doesn't have an invisible, it doesn't come with an invisible zipper foot and I'm unsure whether one can actually be found by it, uh, found for it that fits it. It's from 1965 and perhaps they didn't have invisible zipper. I don't know. I don't know. And so I have a lot to learn, but I do have a machine at home now, which is a big step up. So even if it only just does straight stitch, at least I can start doing some things. So that's exciting. Now, did you feel like you could have done this on your own or did you need to take a class? I need a class. What about the class kind of helped you learn how to sew? I think that I just, in some cases, I just don't have the stick to itness, you know, to get through it. I think some people do. Uh, and I maybe in the past or in different fields I have myself. But I think without like actually registering and paying for the class, putting it on the calendar... I, I just said, you know, I would sit around and have a project, like maybe I would buy some fabric and it would sit around and I would keep saying, oh, today's the day I'm going to sew, but I would never get around to it. And then if I did manage to get around to it, I would quickly goof up and then become frustrated. So having a teacher to help you through complex projects, I think is really important because you get, it's important to get success under your belt early on to build the kind of confidence that you need to go on and do more complex work. Now, I just had the surreal experience of attending a academic conference where I stumbled into a discussion and heard our own book discussed <laughs> uh, favorably, uh, but it was within the discussion of gender. And some people would say, well, you know, isn't sewing, it takes a lot of time. Wouldn't you be better it's off? Enough, yet another way to keep the women to down. To keep the women down, shouldn't you be arguing a Supreme Court case or whatever I know. as an alternative? What do you say to that? Uh, you know, the, the, these are very complex questions, perhaps in a lot of it's contextual. I mean, I know I'm not oppressed. I know that Eric is a better seamstress than I am, so I don't That's feel... That's not true, actually. Well, maybe now, but you You're, were... I was very impressed with in what In the 90s, done. Eric was sewing bowling shirts, I gotta say. Except so, that people would come up to me and say, did you sew that yourself? <laughs> but so I think sewing doesn't have like a he heavy gender weight or history of oppression with me, although I can see how people could read that. And and I also see how, you know, people think it's yet one more thing that takes time. And, and, and it's true. Like, I think the constellation of things that Eric and I discuss, um, whether it be gardening or home cooking or canning or making your own face lotion or soap or whatever. Yeah, all of that takes time. Uh, and not all of us have enough time. And I don't think many of us have time to do all of these things. But I think we have time to do some of these things. And I think that there's value in doing some of those things just because you're working with your heart and your hands over something you love. I think you should never do any of these things because you feel like you have to or you should. Yeah, um, that's a nice way to put it. I mean... I would say pick one thing that you're good at and, and something do that, that if that's, that you if don't that's know your if, personality. Yeah, something that you are really intrigued with or you really love. So if you really like beer, then learn how to make beer. Well, you have a friend who's actually a full-time librarian who also is a damn good 
seamstress. Yeah, her mother say. is. They I mean, make like couture level. Clothing. You would never think that she sewed it herself. Yeah, no, her her clothes are beautiful. And as an example, someone who specialized in something because I don't think she. I don't know. If she does a fermentation or chickens <laughs> or all that kind she, of stuff. She she restores furniture too, and she knows how to upholster. I mean, I'll also add, of course, we write about these things, so we have to do them, so we write about them because it's our career, but it's not, we don't, we don't think that you have to do all of these things. But then on the other hand, some of the to- sometimes we end up doing things because we are not happy with what the market provides. Well, tell me a little more about that. Why is yeah. it important to sew your own clothes? Well, let me step back with, just expand on that. You know, why do you make bread? Because all the bread in the stores suck. It's crappy. Yeah. I mean, and, and why do we have our own chickens? Because we can't get any eggs from well-treated chickens. So there are these, why do I make lotion? Because I want lotion without preservatives. And, you know, so it, there's, there's, it, it comes, I think, to a point where you have a line of tolerance that you just can't cross anymore. And you, you can't, like, you, you just say, I can't eat another slice of bad bread. I would rather find the time to make it myself. And... For me, with the sewing and this idea of making a uniform, which I'll just say as an aside, the, the uniform is the idea is that I don't want to just make say I'm going to make all my own clothes because that sounds like a bottomless pit of work. I, I not only do I want to make my own clothes for the reasons I'll discuss next, but but I also want to simplify my life and empty out my closet. I don't want to think about what I'm wearing. I don't want a bunch of stuff in my closet that some of it fits, you know, depending on how much I weigh and some of it's got a stain and maybe I'll fix that. And this doesn't match with this, but it only matches with that. Or if I just got this shirt, then I could wear that. And it's just, I'm tired of the stuff. I, 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 the older I get, the more I want things simple. I always say to Eric, I want to live in a cave with a bowl and a spoon and and I think having just like a style of clothing that I wear that maybe just come this this uniform comes in some different weights summer to winter, uh, maybe there's a sweater if it gets really cold. That's it. I mean I'm I'm tired of screwing around with this stuff. So I'm going to make myself the ideal outfit that I wear all the time. That's my that's the eccentric side of this, the side which is predictable and the side which is like all of our other behaviors, which isn't just being unhappy with the status quo and doing it ourselves rather than buying into the system, that's the second part that we can talk about. And that, I mean, I think we all know this. I mean, it's just like we all know that the meat, the industrial meat system is bad, but some of us continue to eat meat anyway, because we have a hard time figuring out how to structure our diet without the meat. Um, or there's, you know, or we drive our cars, even though we know the, the, the fuel, it's, it's all bad. You know, we, we make compromises all the time. And there's been a few areas where I feel like I've sort of crawled above the compromise and and do things differently and am pleased with that. But clothing has been one area where I've been in deep denial as much as any bacon eating person is. You know, I I know that the clothes um, that I buy in a mall are sewn probably under deplorable conditions. I know that the fabrics are not organic I know that the dyes are toxic, and yet, where am I? I'm in the Gap sales rack looking for workout t-shirts, you know? So that's that's just something I needed to face. And one thing that helped me um, face the denial was a book um, called Second Skin by India Flint. And that book, when I first started talking about uniforms, I, more than one of our readers recommended Second Skin. Um, and then later, one of our readers and neighbors, Pilar, who also made shoes with us, brought me um, Second Skin as a gift. 
So I'm thrilled, thank you, Pilar, um, uh, thrilled by having this book permanently in my collection because I had got it from the library after being on the waiting list for it for like a billion years before it you know, became available because it's a popular book. And Second Skin, is it's called Second Skin, Choosing and Caring for Textiles and Clothing. It's by, a, I guess I would call her a fabric artist named India Flint, uh, which is a great name. Uh, and her book, it's, it's, it's sort of an encyclopedic book. It's a big, pretty book that covers a huge range of information about clothing and fabric and sewing. And it's very personal and very experiential with a lot of stories from her life. And while it has some how-to stuff in it, I would not probably call it a how-to book, but I would call it an inspirational book. And, you know, I... I just enjoyed reading about her relationship to her wardrobe and her memories of you know how limited her wardrobe was as a child and how the older women in her family you know didn't have many clothes but they were beautiful clothes that were well cared for um, and carefully designed perhaps hand sewn uh, how things were worn out and passed down you know so different from our fast fashion or throwaway fashion that we world that we have now where we have no incentive to take care of our clothing or to mend it uh, or, or do anything with it at all except just you know wear it twice and throw it in the garbage which considering the the stress you know every garment places on the planet is is really wrong um so this just brought it home to me. She has advice about choosing a wardrobe, making clothes. She talks about all the different kinds of textiles, where they come from, how they're made. Uh, she talks about um, dyeing and you know why chemical dyes are problematic. Black dye, right? That's yeah, really bad. she, which was, <laughs> which kind of struck me in the heart. Um, it being the inner goth that you are. Yeah, I mean, well, she she said that black uh, black is actually the worst the most toxic dye of all, which is really hurts me since I've been wearing mostly black all of my You're adult life. You're actually wearing one right now. I'm wearing funny. all black right now. I, I, I black is, <laughs> black is my color. I've always worn black um, since the junior high. So I've, I've put a lot of um, bad chemicals in the world. So now I, uh, anyway, she, so she talks about uh, yeah, dyes, um, and then how to make your own dyes out of plant materials. Um, she talks about mending and altering, um, repurposing clothing, you know, cutting a sweater up and do other things with it, um, you know, how to work with thrift store clothing, which is an obvious way to get around the problems, the, the kind of ethical problems of buying new clothes is just to buy them used, you know, go to the thrift store and buy them. And I had, I used to thrift store a lot and we haven't really since we've moved to L.A., partially because that thrifting in L.A. is really bad because it all gets picked over by professional thrifters before we can get to it. It's like we have to go to other towns to the thrift store uh, shop. But anyway, that's just another excuse. Anyway, Second Skin, great book, uh, very inspirational. And that you know, sort of helped me solidify like the passion that I need to go through the effort of learning how to sew and making my own clothes. So one of the thing, one of the other factor is that I want to use um, properly sourced fabric to make my uniform. And I don't even, I think I'm going to have to go to Northern California <laughs> to get this stuff. But I want to look for, you know, uh, from local, like locally grown, properly grown fabrics from the, like the fiber, the local fiber shed or the Northern California fiber shed, at least linens and organic cottons and things like that. Um, and then I'm going to have to learn to maybe live without black. Oh, I can't imagine that. Or you're going to have to spin cat hair. 
<laughs> my cat hair sweaters. Well, I, maybe I should not be wearing so much black as I get older because, you know, I'm getting older now and you start running the risk of looking like an old hag, you know. Mm-hmm. So or an old you go goth. from you, an old goth, which is like an old hag. You go from, you know, you know, sexy goth to, you know, haggard old hag. So, I mean, I probably should be wearing lighter colors now anyway. Well, I think we're we're actually getting near an hour, which I'm surprised we've jabber, 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 jabber that long. So we should probably wrap it up. But yeah. I think we're at a kind of listening to you and listening to me earlier. I think we are at a an important disclaimer needs to be made about picking your battles because <laughs> while we're talking about the horribleness of how clothing is manufactured, we're using computer equipment here that which is, is horrid, also horrid, horribly, horrid, horribly manufactured. It's all horrid. We live in a pile of horrid. And you, know? you have to navigate this uh, life, it seems to me. Yeah, um, and, you, and I think you have to forgive yourself and just, just do what you can and forgive the rest. And pick your you battles. You are a product of your culture, and you can't escape that. Uh, but you can try to be aware of it. All right. Well, All right. Uh, we'll be back next week with probably with a guest next week. Oh, I'm going to book a bunch of guests pretty soon. Exciting guests. Many exciting to guests. To be revealed. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.